So last week we talked about the presence of God coming to us in the person of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us during our, our lessons and carol service. And the, this is the astonishing gift that we celebrate, of course, at Christmas. The gift of God's presence coming among and coming into us. And that's beautiful and true and worthy of our singing and our feasting that is going to kick off in, in about two days on Christmas Eve. But there's a problem in this, and it's a problem that infiltrates every nation, every culture, every family, every community, every relationship, and every human heart. And we call that problem sin in the Christian way of life through the scriptures. And, and by sin, scripture, as it speaks of sin, means missing the mark. Like an arrow shot at a target that misses the mark, goes off the path of life that is given to us according to God's perfect and good will, and taking over our own path, walking by the light of our own torch, as Isaiah 50 verse 11 says, or by the counsel of our own hearts, as the prophet Jeremiah continually uh, rebukes the people of Israel for doing. And when we do this, when we begin to walk by our own path, the consequences are pretty severe. It destroys relationships, it destroys communities and nations, it destroys individuals. Sin leads to presidents being impeached, to refugee crises, to wars, to opioid addictions, to human trafficking, and really to every kind of injustice and diminishment of life. The wages of sin is death, the scriptures say. The destruction of life. At a very personal level, sin creates duplicity inside each one of us, leading us to wear masks, to cover ourselves up, to hide from one another, to present false selves to other people. When we feel lonely, when we feel unloved, when we feel unknown, and all of us feel these things from time to time, these realities can be attributed to sin. Not just sin in our own lives, though that may be part of it, but sin in the world, sin in the community, sin in people around us, and so on. We were made for community. We were made to, to give and to receive love. We were made to know people and to be known by other people. But, the, but sin gets in the way of all of this, of God's design, and cuts us off from the path to these things. And our hearts all ache because of it. So there are a lot of problems with sin. But above all, there's one great problem. And it is the fact that sin separates us from the life-giving presence of God. For God is the one thing that we need in life. Not money. Not worldly security. Not health. Not clarity about our future. We need God. Desperately. And sin gets in the way of this. In an action that symbolizes this reality uh, of the disastrous effect of sin, the first human couple after sinning, remember what happens to them. They are banished from the garden where the Lord God walks among them in the cool of the day and where they had access to the tree of life. That banishment to the east of Eden is something that signifies a loss of the very presence of God and a loss of the life of God at the same time. Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And this means simultaneously that sin as it moves us away from God is of course moving us away from life. Which is why after committing adultery with Bathsheba and after murdering her husband Uriah by putting him to the front of the enemy lines in the, in, in the war that Israel was fighting, David cries out for mercy to God in this way. And he says this, Cast me not away from your presence, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knew, I need you, 
above everything else. And he knew the natural consequences of his sin and how disastrous they were, but he knew that he needed the presence of God, and that was essential, so he cries out to God. You know, the flip side of the fact that sin separates us from God is the biblical teaching that to be in God's presence, we are to be pure and clean. So if you caught Psalm 24, as we read earlier, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, the psalmist asks, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer, so who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, stand in his holy place? This is about his temple, where his presence is. Who shall get to be in your presence? That's the question. And the psalmist answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, Unless we think this is just the teaching of the psalmist or of the Old Testament, remember the words of Jesus in his most well-known sermon, the, the Sermon on the Mount, in a verse that means a lot to me personally and has meant a lot to our community. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. We get, who gets to be in the presence of God? Who gets to enjoy him? A vision of him? It is the pure in heart, Jesus says. Those with clean hands. Of course, then, this presents us a problem, and the problem It's a problem with God's presence coming among us because we are not clean, we know this, and we are not pure. Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? It's an honest observation from the psalmist. We're all guilty, we're all tainted, we're all infiltrated by the power of sin in a really deep way. So how can we enjoy the presence of God? How can we ascend the hill of the Lord? How can we stand in his holy place? Remember the Israelites when they were at Mount Sinai and God had come down in the thunder and the lightning and the cloud and the sounds of trumpets? They said, "How can they said, please, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore because if he speaks, we will die. They trembled at the holy mountain where the presence of God had come. They were warned, don't even touch the mountain because if you do, you will die. And if God's holy and awesome presence so terrifying, it was so terrifying to sinners back then, How can we even now welcome his descent, not on the mountain, but into a manger in the Christmas story? Peter gives us this dynamic when he, after the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, falls down at Jesus' feet. You remember this part? And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I know that I can't be in your presence. I'm too tainted. I'm too impure. My heart isn't right. Depart from me. Let me stop for just a moment and ask this question. Do we understand this dynamic? Do we, do we understand that we have no right and no claim upon God to access his presence in and of ourselves? I really do fear that this is one of the great follies of the church today, that we have such a diminished understanding of God's holiness and of our own sin that we are so unfamiliar with, um, that we are so over-familiar with the gift of God's presence in Christ that we have assumed that his presence is ours by right, that we are owed this by God. Remember the people of Israel in Jeremiah 7, they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, when their lives reflected nothing of the Lord's justice and mercy in their culture and society. But they thought they were owed his presence. But we aren't owed anything by God. And if we are to live the, the Christian life rightly, if we are to walk this, right, this life rightly, fully, we must remember fundamentally that we are owed nothing, that we have no claim upon God, that we do not deserve God. This is what's at the heart of the concept of fearing the Lord. What is the beginning of wisdom? 
fear of the Lord. That heart of that, that, the heart of that concept, which is so central in Scripture, it means that we have no presumption, no claims upon God and his life. God is holy and I am not. And yet, here is the great miracle. God has done it. God has made a way. God has bridged the gap. And this insight that God has bridged that gap that we can't bridge on our own strength fuels our praise and our rejoicing and our obedience and our love. It enlivens the heart and leads us to a vigorous obedience in living a life of love because of what God has done. If you take this insight away, that God has bridged this unbridgeable gap, then we become like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, whose hearts are lukewarm. So it's this amazing provision of God to deal with this problem that we read about in the angel's words to the bewildered Joseph in Matthew 1 this morning. Remember, Joseph had discovered that his wife or his fiance married, the one to whom he was betrothed, they weren't quite married yet, was to be, she was with child. And he, does, and he resolves as a, a kind man and, a, and a, a, a merciful man to dissolve their relationship quietly, which was the only honorable thing that he could do. But then he has a dream. If you look at Matthew 1 with me. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying. What I want you to see is that this provision, God works miraculously through a dream. And he does this through, throughout Scripture, and he still does it in the world today. We all hear of the stories of what's going on in the Muslim world as the Christian gospel is being oppressed and persecuted, that often, again and again, God appears to Muslims in dreams. We had a young man in the church in the early years of Church of the Cross who was from a Muslim country who had encountered Jesus in a dream. He described that dream to me. It was very vivid and real for him, and it's why he was in our church, because Jesus had met him in a dream. But God still speaks in dreams today. I've experienced this in my life, not very often, but occasionally, and I know others of you have as well. What I love about the fact that God works in a dream here is that it's an entirely one-way work. Where is Joseph? He's sleeping. He's contributing nothing. In dreaming, we are wholly at rest, hopefully, dependent and still, unless you're a bad sleeper. And God speaks, and God acts, God reveals, God performs. This should hearken us back to Genesis 15, when God said, look, I'm making a promise that the sin of Adam will not be the end of the creation story that the destruction and death and despair that it has brought into the created world will not be the last word. And I make a covenant with Abraham to one day bring about, bring about a worldwide blessing that will reach all the nations. And I ask, what could his blessing be except his presence? Honestly. I mean, it is many things. But at the heart, the blessing of God is the blessing of God's presence. And so to make this covenant with Abraham, what happens to Abraham? A deep sleep fell upon him in a deep darkness. And in that sleep and darkness, when Abraham is perfectly passive and not contributing anything, God speaks to him about their going down to a land in slavery and being redeemed. And then God, in the, in the, in the, the imagery of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, passes between the two halves of the animals that have been slain to make the covenant between him and Abraham. As if to say unilaterally, this is what I'm doing. While you're asleep, I'm acting in this way. That same pattern is what we see here in Matthew 1. While you were asleep, you didn't even know your wife was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but she is. And now while you're asleep, the angel's going to show up and start to speak to you and do something and reveal something to you in your sleep. It's as if God is saying, look, I don't need you, but I love you. I don't need you, but I love you. And he 
here's how I'm going to show you that love. So what does the angel say in the dream? Two things. First, this child that's in Mary, your betrothed, is from the Holy Spirit, the angel says. This is me. I I am working in this unforeseen circumstance that makes no sense to you, Joseph, and that shatters your categories and makes you feel really insecure and ashamed and worried and all these other things. Don't worry. I'm actually the one at work in this. This is from the Holy Spirit, this child. Walk with me in this, Joseph. Trust me in this. And the second thing the angel says is, this woman, your, your, uh, your betrothed, will have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which it's important to note is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Why will you call him Jesus, Joseph? Because the angel continues, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21 of Matthew 1. And here is the answer. God's volley into the problem of his holy presence coming among sinners like you and me. He comes in the person of his son to save us from our sins. David, back to David in that Bathsheba moment in Psalm 51, he knew that his only hope was the mercy and forgiveness of God. Only God could forgive sin. Only God could cleanse sin. What man or woman can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? The answer is, no one could, because it's not possible for us to cleanse ourselves or to forgive ourselves. If we are to be delivered, if we're to be rescued from the reality of sin, if we're to be cleansed, then David says, this has to come from God. And and David cries out, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It is you, God, and you alone who can make our hearts pure. You alone who can cleanse us from our sins. You alone who can deliver us from this great problem that entered into the world when the first couple ate the forbidden fruit and has since that time wrought destruction among communities and individuals. He will save his people, the angel says, from their sins. We get a little commentary on this in John's first epistle. He says, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. It's 1 John 3, 5. And later in verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why he came. This is why Jesus entered in. In fact, it was to restore us to his life-giving presence, to God's life-giving presence. A presence that would have crushed us without this covering, without this action. But wonder of all wonders and glory of all glories, instead of it crushing us, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. Who could have imagined this? Joseph heard this word in a dream, that Jesus would be born of Mary and would save God's people from their sins. But how could he have ever imagined that one day this son of his, this Jesus, would be hanging from a Roman cross, betrayed, forsaken, abandoned, mocked, spit upon, beaten, bloodied, gasping for breath under the weight of his sagging, pain-ridden, naked, and humiliated body. Not even the disciples could wrap their head around God's intentions and plans. Even after spending three years in the presence of this Jesus and being taught by him, even after three times, Jesus explicitly tells them what needs to happen. They still couldn't get it. They couldn't understand. Yet Jesus knew this was his mission. It was For us. It was to come for us. It was to come born to die, Hark the Herald Angel Sing says. He was born to die, that we might have the second birth, that we might have life. 
He came to save us from our sins, to open up the floodgates of God's presence in the person of the Holy Spirit, to be poured out upon you and upon me. Sinners, those whose hands were not clean, those whose hearts were not pure, but God made a way to come and be among us, to give us life. When Chloe, our oldest, who's now 16, was a little girl, I taught her this little thing that I want to teach you right now in a way to kind of help communicate this message. But I said, Chloe, this is God, and this is us. I put my two fingers up, and then I brought them together, and we were together. But sin separated us from God. But in Jesus, God brought us back together. And making my fingers back in the form of a cross. It's simple. It's elementary. But it's so profound that this is what God was doing when he sent Jesus into the world. I want to bring this to a close by just two quick features of this deliverance from sin. This bringing back together with God with which I hope that you can, can, can let ring in your hearts and your minds as you walk through this week ahead and all that it brings as we celebrate this gift. The, the first reality of this deliverance is forgiveness. You're, de- you're delivered from your guilt, the guilt of your sin by Jesus entering in. Filthiness is washed away. That same epistle, first epistle of John, he says, you know, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In John's vision that we looked at a few weeks ago, but the vision of Revelation, we get to chapter 7 and he sees this multitude that no one could number from every tribe and peoples and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're crying out before this God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the elders are gathered around and the the 24 elders and the four living creatures And they're adding their voices to this chorus saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And one of the elders engages John in a conversation about this multitude clothed in white robes. And John says, he says, who are those? And and John says, you know, surely you know. And then the elder answers, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. The Lamb that in Revelation 5 he looks up and sees the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. The Lamb whose blood had been poured out to cleanse a people who would become the people of all nations that praise God in a world of blessing, enjoying His presence. And then he finishes that vision. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The multitude is the multitude of the cleansed. They're the multitude of the clean heart and pure hands. A clean heart and pure hands that they were given as a gift from the sacrifice of God's own Son. The one who was born to set us free. Because of his cross, you and I can be cleansed. God wills this for us if we would merely turn to him and confess. So forgiveness, but second and finally, this deliverance means a liberation as well. A liberation from sin's power. Because at the cross, Jesus defeats the devil. And he casts him out and overthrows the ruler of the present world. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that through death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, who is the devil. And now we are liberated as those who have been not only cleansed and washed, but set free. The shackles have been broken, and we've been liberated now to go live life by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This is what the book of Romans is all about. This is what the New Testament is all about. You are no longer slaves of sin. You have been set free. You've been liberated, and you're now a slave of righteousness. So, Paul will say in Romans 8, walk in this new kind of life, a life that is marked by, a clean, by clean hands and by a pure heart. The gospel, the good news of Christianity, is not just that we've been forgiven, and we have, and that's amazing news and beautiful news, but it's that having been forgiven, we've also been liberated and freed to live into a different kind of humanity, the in Christ kind of humanity, to bear a new kind of life into the world that's marked by the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are now the things that are possible for you and for me. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God. That's the reality of the presence of God coming to dwell inside of you and inside of me. We can now live this life of Psalm 24 and continue to enjoy the presence of God, to come before him at his holy hill, to stand in his holy place. The beauty of what God has done, the gift in Jesus, the deliverance from sins, the reality of forgiveness is the liberation now empowered by the Spirit to walk in a new way of life. And however much you struggle to walk in that way of life, and we all do, because as John's first epistle, which I keep going back to this morning, says, if anyone says he's without sin, he is a liar, John says. It's a part of our life. It will be an ongoing part of our life. But however much you may be struggling in that right now, recognize that the the beauty and the wonder and the power of what God has done in this Christmas event, which culminates at Calvary at the cross and then is celebrated in victory at the resurrection, what God has done, what God is initiating and kicking off in his first coming is he's liberated you from those powers of darkness in such a way that it is, in fact, and I think the church misses this far too much today, it is in fact possible Not by your own strength, not because you're somehow now good, not because you can somehow clean your hands and purify your own heart, because you can't, but because of God and his very presence, the Spirit coming to dwell in you, you now have the power to live a life that is marked by love, marked by joy, marked by peace. And if you're walking around in your Christian life right now going, I don't think this is possible, simply kind of dwelling in the reality of the brokenness of the world, but not having the hope or the expectation that God can break those chains and lift us up to something new, something that we can't do in our own power, then I don't think we're really living the Christian life because the Christian life is marked by hope. It's marked by the reality that Paul says, faithful is he who called you and he will surely do it. What he began, this good work that he began in you, he will bring it to completion and he has the power to do so by his spirit. He will save his people from their sins. That doesn't just mean once at the cross or once in the history of your life, but it means every day as you walk from here to glory, being changed from one degree to another into his image. That is our life. That is the gift of what God has given us in his presence, to come and dwell among us, to empower us to something new and whole and beautiful and good. And we should say to that gift, Alleluia, as those in Revelation 7, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. On Tuesday, sorry, Wednesday, Tuesday night, we'll be back together. Wednesday morning, when you wake up, I hope that you will remember this incredible, incredible gift of the presence of God, which you can now enjoy because he will save you and has saved you from your sins.
and make this your prayer. We're going to stand now in response and sing this song that comes right out of Psalm 24 as a prayer to God in response to his word. So let's sing.